do I still have my singing reverb and everything on the mic? Or It's pretty weird, I've got to say, to be standing out here without like an instrument in front of me. It's uh, slightly uncomfortable, but uh, that's all right. Uh, this is our last week of um, the youth takeover, and I, I suppose I technically count. Uh, I've got three children, so I feel like I'm a bit beyond youth now, but uh, that's all right. That's all right. Um, why don't we start with a prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right. So throughout January, uh, we have been looking at people in the Bible who have experienced some sort of big change in their life and have had a name change accompanying that. So uh, firstly, we heard about Simon, who was a loud-mouthed oaf, and he became Peter, the rock, the foundation of the church. Then we heard about Sarai and her husband, Abram. She had to endure years and years of denial before God finally breathed himself into her. And then she became Sarah, the mother of nations, our mother, our spiritual mother, through the covenant, the promises of God. And of course, along with her, her husband Abraham, the father of nations. But uh, what's been said about him? Last week, we heard about Jacob, the great trickster, who he himself was tricked in return. We heard about how he wrestled with God and won and became Israel. Today, we are going to look at the story of a Pharisee named Saul, who now is more widely known by the name Paul. So why don't we get stuck into the passage? We're going to have the Bible on the screen. I think. Yeah, there we go. From the book of Acts. Meanwhile, so meanwhile, this is in the previous chapter, uh, Philip had uh, numerous adventures with a sorcerer and a eunuch. So meanwhile, while this is happening, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there, that's Christians. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes... He was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. 
Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul and he laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, this is a little bit of a lengthy passage that we've just looked at here. But here's the first thing that I want you to notice about it. We've seen Saul be converted. We've seen him be healed of his blindness. We've seen him be baptised. We've seen him get some rest, regain his strength. We've seen him start preaching the gospel and we've even seen him have some success doing so. And at no point yet has he been called Paul. In fact, we don't get that name change for another three chapters. And, and this is all we get in three chapters' time. Uh, the writer of Acts tells us, Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's it. That's it. No context. Nothing else. Um, thanks, everyone. I'll hand over for Brent now. That's all. That's it. There's no more context in the Bible. We don't learn anything else about why his name's Paul. Um, so what we don't see here is a story like we've had in previous weeks where uh, God makes a big change in someone's life and he, he gives them a new name. Paul isn't given a new name um, at some point later in his ministry, well into his ministry, uh, the writer of Acts just starts calling him this other name. So what's going on here? Um, let, me, let me digress for a bit. When I was a kid, um, I uh, went to school and church in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, that way. Uh, and that way? I'm sorry, I'm terrible with directions. Um, and, uh, and uh, in the eastern suburbs, there was a, a reasonably large population of migrant families from Southeast Asia. 
And uh, one of the things I noticed about all these kids that I was going to school and I was going to church with who came from these families um, is they would often have a, uh, like a, a name from their heritage. If they were Chinese, they were Vietnamese, Korean. Um, and they would also have an English name. And often, not always, but often, these names sounded quite similar. So I knew one guy whose uh, name was spelled X-H-O-N, and he would introduce himself and he would go, hey man, my name's Jean, which wasn't Sean with a C-H, and it wasn't Chan with a C-H, and it wasn't Jean like in the French. And so he'd introduce himself and, you know, the person he was talking to would be like, John? And he'd go, yeah, that's it, you've got it. Good job. Uh, and eventually he just started saying, hey, my name's John with an X, which is, you know, pretty cool. Uh, and I knew another guy whose name was Cho Sun. So that's two words, Cho hyphen Sun. And uh, he went by Jason. And uh, in this case, this was actually his legal name on the class roll. It would say Jason Cho Sun Park or, you know, this is streaming, so it's obviously not his real surname, but you get the idea. Um, and it didn't always happen this way. You know, I, I knew another guy whose name was uh, something along the lines of um, Pok Chuan, uh, and his English name was Roberto. Always, always pronounced with his accent. The mother always pronounced it with the accent. We just called him Bert, but his mother always called him Roberto. So, you know, it didn't always happen that way, but, but it often did. And this is exactly uh, what we are seeing here in the Book of Acts. So um, this Pharisee that we're talking about today, his parents gave him a name from their own culture, Saul, or, or rather Shaul is, is more the pronunciation. I don't know if I've got that quite right. But, um, but Judea, where he lived, was under Roman occupation. Uh, and we also know from later in the book of Acts that um, this guy was a Roman citizen. So... Uh, he could have been given a Greek name to help him, you know, get through life in, in Roman-occupied territory, but he was a Roman citizen, so he got a Latin name as well, and that is Paul, or rather Paulus. Um, so in the original language, it's not quite as similar as we get it in English, but maybe his parents saw some similarity. So this, uh, this brings me to my first point, which is this. How did Paul's name change, or rather, his change in primary form of address, because he always had both names and he always kept both names. How did Paul's change of primary form of address arise from the big change that God made in his life? Now, to answer this question, we're going to look at the other passage that was listed in our very hip intro video. Uh, which comes from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, and uh, that's on the screen now. Even though I am a free man with no master, so free man, he was a Roman citizen, he wasn't uh, a lower class, uh, he was a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under the law, even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. 
But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. So for the sake of Christ, for the sake of spreading the good news, that is because of Paul's conversion, right? Because of Paul's conversion, he is changing his name, or at least changing the name that he uses, depending on who he is with. When he's with the Jews, he's likely using the name Saul. And when he's with the Gentiles, as he is for most of Scripture, he's using the Gentile name Paul. Now, on the surface, this doesn't really seem that significant. Because people use nicknames all the time. People change their names when they get married. But I think if we dig a little bit deeper into who Paul was as a person, we'll, we'll find out how significant this is. So uh, in Philippians 3, this is what Paul tells us about himself. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. In uh, Acts 22, he uh, goes on to name drop the rabbi who taught him. Uh, and this rabbi was a leading authority in the Sanhedrin. He was well esteemed and respected by everyone. Uh, his name was Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was actually the grandson of Rabbi Hillel, who is possibly the greatest Jewish teacher who has ever lived. Um, to give you, some, give you an idea of how strong this pedigree of teaching is, um, you, know the, you, you know the golden rule, right? The famous one, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. When Jesus says this, he's actually paraphrasing Rabbi Hillel. So Rabbi Hillel had a saying, it's going to go on the board, uh, that which is hateful to you, do not do unto your fellow. That is the whole Torah, the rest is commentary. Now go and learn. Very famous saying. And Rabbi Hillel was um, preaching and teaching at about the time when Jesus was born. So this saying would have been very strong in the minds of everyone listening to Jesus. They would have understood that he was referencing, paraphrasing, uh, this teacher. Of course, this saying itself is based on um, Leviticus 18, 19, love your neighbour as yourself, so we can't give him all the credit. Um, but, yeah, very strong pedigree of teaching. Jesus himself paraphrased this Jewish teacher who Paul was sort of descended in a line of, uh, of teacher and student from. Add to this the fact that Paul, uh, Saul, we're going to call him, Saul was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And another famous Benjamite named Saul was, of course, King Saul, the very first king of Israel. So you can imagine, with a name like that, how proud he must have been of his Jewishness. With a name like that, with a pedigree like that, how proud he must have been and how proud his parents must have been. He must have inherited this pride in his ethnicity, in his racial background from his parents. They named him 
after one of the greatest members of their tribe. And you can imagine that, that growing up, learning from Gamaliel, becoming a Pharisee, how unlikely it was that he ever used the name Paul that he was given until his ministry. There's nothing in Scripture to confirm this, but given what we know of him from the Bible, you can really easily imagine that he must have had a lot of disdain for that name, a lot of disdain for that Gentile part. And let's go on and, and see what he then, he then says in Philippians. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, this pedigree, this name this Jewishness. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Paul's entire ministry is based around taking these two things that were the foundation of his identity, his Jewishness and his ability to follow the law and teaching others that these two things were worthless in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't get an additional letter in his name like Sarai and Abram, which probably didn't really make too much difference to their daily lives. They're very similar names. He didn't get a whole new name, like Peter, like Israel. And to be honest, you read through the Bible, they're still often called Simon and Jacob interchangeably, even after the name change. He had to give up his attachment to his heritage, his pride in who he was. And he was likely still called Saul, by other Jewish people, that he had to give up what that meant to him. He had to come to them in part as an outsider. These people that he was once so proud to be one of. He had to use a name and be remembered by this name for thousands of years that he probably once despised. So here's my question, my challenge to you. Is there some part of your identity that God is asking you to give up your attachment to in order to serve him? Now, maybe it's not as dramatic as Paul's was. Maybe it's just as, as simple as being a mountains man coming down to the beach to lead God's people in worship every week. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Is there some part of your identity that God is asking you to give up your attachment to in order to serve him? Now, this can be a pretty scary thought, so let me offer something else. Even though Paul had a radical and dramatic change, in some ways, he didn't actually change very much at all. What we see before his conversion as a Pharisee, is a man who is passionate, who is tenacious, who is zealous, who is deeply 
intelligent. And after his conversion, his priorities have been flipped. He now spreads the gospel in trying, instead of trying to kill people who follow it. We see very much this same man, a man who is passionate, a man who is tenacious, a man who is zealous, a man who is deeply intelligent, a man who still has such a profound knowledge of Jewish scripture as he did as a Pharisee, but instead he's using it to debate other scholars and to show them the truths of Jesus Christ. So here's a second question. Is there something about your personality that instead of giving up for God, you can give over to God. Maybe this is something that is perceived as negative by society. Maybe it's a characteristic that is just presenting in an inappropriate way. If you imagine if Paul had said, once I was zealous, so zealous for the law, that I persecuted Christians. But now that I am a Christian, I'm not going to be zealous anymore. If he had given up that zeal in order to become a Christian, Christianity would look very different today. But instead, he turned that zeal over to God and God was able to reorient it. Is there something about your personality that instead of giving up for God, you can give over to God? God. I'm going to finish with one more point. All this talk of giving up parts of our identity, of handing over parts of our personality, it's stuff that is often frowned on by modern society. You know, people will say you shouldn't change yourself so that someone will love you. And that's true, but we should remember that Paul says that it is while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. This is not something that I'm asking you to think about that God might be asking you to do in order to earn his love. It's something that we can do because the change that God works in us is a big part of the hope that we have as Christians. Now, there is one other character in the Bible that God gives a new name to, accompanying a big change. Can you guess who it is? It's you. It's you. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. That's you. If you have ears to hear, if you listen to the Spirit, if you are a part of the victory that Jesus Christ has over sin and death, you too will be given a new name carved on a white stone. 
Now, there's lots of theories about what this white stone represents. In ancient Greece, uh, members of a jury would cast a white stone to declare the accused innocent and would cast a black stone to proclaim the defendant guilty. Now, these stones didn't have names inscribed on them, but the truth remains that the blood of Jesus has washed you clean, has declared you innocent, has declared you righteous. Another theory is that uh, important buildings at the time that Revelation was written were often made of white marble. And this includes the Temple of Asclepius at Pergamum. Now, if you flick a little earlier in Revelation chapter 2, you'll notice that this verse that we just read is part of Jesus' address to the church at Pergamum. So it's a reference that they would have probably understood. Uh, And at the front of the temple were these big white pillars that uh, people's names were carved in if it was believed that the god Asclepius had healed them. Now, the word that is used for white stone in Revelation, it means a small stone, like a pebble, not a, a big pillar. But that doesn't change the fact that God is going to heal you, that God is going to renew your body along with all of creation. And the third theory, and this is possibly the strongest theory, in ancient Rome, the winners of athletic competitions would be given a white stone with their name engraved on it. And this white stone was called a tessera, and it served as their ticket into a special awards banquet. Jesus spoke about this stone being given to everyone who is victorious. And this stone is our ticket into the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, I do like the other theories too because it's a new name that's on the stone. It's not your current name or your original name, the way it would have been for Roman athletes. Um, and I like the, the ideas of healing and the ideas of innocence. Because this name is a new name, is a healed name, is an innocent name, and that's your future. Renewed, healed, innocent. Why don't we pray? Mighty God, we thank you that you have indeed won the victory over sin and death. We thank you that you are our healer and our defender. We thank you that the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, has washed us clean, acquitted us of guilt, and declared us righteous through faith. Help us, like Paul, to give up our pride for your sake and to use our gifts for your glory. Help us, like Jacob, to wrestle with you, to focus on you, and to remember that you are the provider of all our needs. Help us like Sarah to be patient, to not define ourselves by our perceived failures. And help us like Peter to allow ourselves to be imperfect, to trust you when we fall, and to always get back up again. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.